This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mowell, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Michael Legaspi teaches at Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts. Previously, he taught as Associate Professor of Theology at Creighton University in Nebraska. He's the author of the book, The Death of Scripture and the Rise of Biblical Studies, an intriguing title published by Oxford University Press. Professor Legaspi, welcome to Thinking in Public. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure to be uh, part of the program. Well, I'm looking forward to a conversation about your book, and I have to tell you, I think you win for uh, one of the very best lines in any academic book I've read. Here's the line. Scripture died a quiet death in Western Christendom sometime in the 16th century, end quote. I have to tell you, there are an awful lot of Christians who might think of that in precisely the opposite terms. What did you mean when you wrote these precise words, Scripture died a quiet death in Western civilization or Western Christendom sometime in the 16th century? Well, I guess I should say I, I had been advised by uh, some people that when you when you write a book, you should you should try to start bold. <laughs> so I took that advice and thought I would formulate my argument in as um, provocative and catchy a way as I as I could. Um, so by by starting the book that way, uh, what I intended uh, to show that was that a momentous shift had taken place um, in the 16th century, uh, that the Bible occupied a position in Western culture. Prior to that time, uh, that really began to change fundamentally um, with the Reformation. So when I say that Scripture died, um, what I'm trying to signal is that a mode of understanding the Bible scripturally is one that um, had been um, is one that that was uh, compromised basically by the disunity of the Christian Church um, in Europe in the 16th century. I think about any informed person thinking about the historical development of early modernity, the aftermath of the Reformation, and and much less the rise of the Enlightenment and what we would call modern and even now late modern thought, recognizes that the place of Scripture in terms of our society and culture has been fundamentally changed. But when I read your book and I read that first sentence, I didn't at first understand what you meant. And I think the crucial word here is the word Scripture, because You're saying something different than to say that the Bible died a quiet death in Western Christendom in the 16th century. You're saying that Scripture did, and you're using Scripture there in a very precise means, a very precise way. No, that's that's very astute. Um, I use the word Scripture here to um, invoke a way of um, interacting with the Bible that's that's traditional, that Christians, uh, in which Christians have been operating for um, really for hundreds of years, for millennia. That is to say, um, when I refer to the Bible as Scripture, I'm talking about it in its role uh, as an authoritative guide for life, um, that is to say, the Christian life which exists um, in the Church and in communion with other Christians. And so when I say that, the, that Scripture died uh, a death, I'm saying that something about that mode of understanding the Bible uh, was lost um, when when the Christian Church was um, was split asunder during the 16th century in the time of the Reformation. Uh, and so the Bible continued very much to be alive in Western culture uh, after after the Reformation, uh, obviously, but because of the contested nature uh, of the religious environment in Europe, uh, I think new ways of understanding the Bible and trying to relate to it uh, were developed, and, and you might say had to be developed. And so part of the story of the book is trying to understand how um, how people from across the theological, religious, and political spectrum 
dealt with this change in uh, the status of the Bible uh, in Western culture. Uh, but I sort of take for granted that um, with the sort of onset of uh, early modernity, um, it ceased to be a kind of unproblematic authority in Western culture the way that it once was. Well, you might point out that in terms of your book, it, it could be summarized as the trajectory of the Bible from Scripture to what you call the academic Bible. And again, I think most of us who are aware of modern biblical scholarship and, and are aware of the transformation of academic life, the rise of the university, especially the modern research university, and uh, we, we can immediately understand that something happened there. You're on to something when you shift from Scripture to the academic Bible. But you also say this, for over a millennium, Western Christians read and revered the Christian Bible as Scripture, as an authoritative anthology of unified authoritative writings belonging to the Church. So by the very implication of that sentence, after that millennium, and uh, you date this precisely to the 16th century, Scripture was no longer so much, well, the Bible is no longer so much Scripture that authorized an authoritative anthology of unified writings belonging to the Church. It became something else. It became an academic Bible that belonged to the university. That's right. And, and that's, um, I think, a lot of, um, as I've talked with uh, the book, uh, talked about the book with, with a variety of people, I think one of the misperceptions about what I'm saying is that um, sort of a, a group of people sort of rose up in a hostile way to kind of undo the authority of the Bible. Um, and really, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that, um, is that the academic Bible or the cultural Bible, which we see sort of from, formulated in the uh, late 17th and, and 18th centuries, is a kind of sequel to a, an historical moment in which, um, because of the disunity of the Church, the Bible ceased to exist um, unproblematically in this, in this scriptural way. So... Um, I think that's really the, the story of the book. It's a fairly simple trajectory saying, you know, so the so European Christians are kind of looking uh, at one another after, after centuries of religious division following the Reformation and saying sort of what next. And I think there was very little appetite to return to confessional modes of reading that people had associated with religious warfare and with division, and there was a desire basically to do something different with the Bible. And I think this is where uh, the story of the, of the academic Bible uh, or the cultural Bible um, really begins. You know, I think your book is a tour de force in terms of intellectual history, and I think you really set the stage for that with two very different contexts that you describe very early in your book, and you compare them. One is the context of Christians in worship holding the Bible as Scripture, and the other is in a seminar room where modern academics are sitting around a table in a far more dispassionate uh, and distant understanding of the text uh, argue concerning uh, the same book. It's the same book, but it's not the same book you're really implying. No, that's, that's exactly right. I think, um, so part of the work really has to do with, with my own experience um, as a believing Christian who belongs to a church that reveres the Bible as Scripture, and for whom the Bible um, is the Word of God, experienced uh, liturgically. But at the same time, I sort of had this dual membership uh, in the academy as a, as a student, um, as, a, as a student of the Bible. And I guess what it, what, what became clear to me is that um, not only were there sort of different assumptions about uh, what the Bible was doing, but there were sort of different virtues uh, that were cultivated um, in those different contexts with respect to what it meant to hear and understand the Bible um, in, in a responsible way. And I think for a period of time, you know, I, I had sort of labored under the idea that, um, that the two um, 
really had a kind of mutual benefit for one another. Um, and sort of what I undertook to do in writing the book was to discover um, how the two might be related. Um, I think in the end, I ended up with a more uh, dichotomous uh, characterization of the relationship between the two, um, largely because I see the academic Bible really as oriented as a kind of civic project oriented toward the state. And I see the uh, the scriptural Bible really as one that's oriented in a more fun- fundamental way toward um, our identity as Christians in the kingdom of God. And it's a kind of perennial tension uh, between the two, the life of Christians um, in the world as members of political communities, obviously, uh, but also at the same time as members uh, of God's kingdom or members of the church. And so I, I think the history in some way reflects a more perennial, fundamental tension um, that's been there in, in the history of the, of the Church. Well, I often think, uh, as, as I read a book like yours, that what we understand from the present is is so continuous, uh, or at least uh, referential to the past, but that past is often something that even the people who think themselves rather well-informed about such matters really don't see. I mean, for instance, uh, I would characterize most efforts in, in terms of modern theology as rescue attempts of one sort or another of uh, Christianity from something that moderns believed was no longer tenable. And, and so, for instance, uh, Protestant liberalism emerging in the 19th century in the European context is largely an effort to save Christianity as a meaningful cultural force after the supernatural was no longer a, a natural part of the intellectual furniture. And it seems to me what you're arguing is that there were many, especially in the same cultural and intellectual context, who said the Bible is no longer to be understood as Scripture. It's no longer an authoritative set of writings that we understand to be divinely inspired. However, the Bible's still important, and its importance now has to be translated into a cultural importance. And of all things, along comes, if I'm understanding the story right, the rise of the modern university and the custodians of, of the of the university then, as those who led to this transformation of the Scripture from, or the Bible from Scripture to text. Uh, no, I think that's exactly right, and I think the characterization of this effort as a rescue project um, is really quite apt. Uh, as, as I say in the book, I, I think that um, by the time you get to the 18th century and you're talking about um, sort of elite intellectual cultural in, in Europe, you're talking about an environment in which uh, traditional faith in the Bible has eroded to to a great degree, and uh, having to do with a lot of things um, that that we associate with the Enlightenment, sort of the rise of the new science. Um, we have English deism and rationalism, and uh, we have sort of moral attacks on the uh, on the Bible as as a, a book that's fundamentally immoral. I mean, you name it. The prestige of the Bible had really sunk to an all time low by the time you get to the 18th century. And so the question is, well, what do we do with it now? And I, and I think, unlike the French, uh, many figures associated with the French Enlightenment who would rather have just sort of gotten rid of the Bible entirely, I, I think the insight or the genius, if you will, of these German academics um, at these new universities was not just to get rid of the Bible, but to try and transform its significance. Um, but they had already sort of progressed too far in in this modernizing project to return to the Bible in its old confessional forms. So what they did was to create a way of thinking and talking about the Bible um, in terms of its cultural value, uh, which I think that, that process had really been intimated or begun uh, in other parts of Europe as well. But what I think made the German contribution so unique um, was the idea that this approach to the Bible as a kind of cultural artifact could be made uh, a program or an enterprise at the university. For and the so state. 
and the state. And and that's that's the um, important thing about German universities at the time is that uh, they're very much instruments of state. Um, I think unlike the older university tradition, um, say in, in, in even when you think of the University of Paris in the late Middle Ages or places like Oxford or Cambridge, um, you're talking about universities with a much more churchly character. Um, and so there is a kind of relationship there between what's going on at the university and the life of the church. But in Germany, um, these are really statist enterprises. And so when these German scholars undertake the study of the cultural Bible in an academic milieu, um, they're trying to make the case to their employers that what they're doing has relevance to the flourishing of the state. And um, so they they marry this impulse to sort of allow the Bible to continue on in its cultural afterlife with a pedagogical program designed to produce um, enlightened people who can serve in the modern state. And uh, that, I think, is basically the recipe for the uh, for modern biblical studies um, as we know it. Well, you might say that uh, that what was going on here is that the Germans, especially those even the, the in the German monarchy and, uh, and the German elites who, who created the universities, they wanted to do so in order to create a, a modern unified Germany and a, a common German culture. And they really didn't think that could be done without the Christian uh, Bible at, at the center of that culture as a, as a central point of reference. But it was no longer the scripture, and, and, and as a matter of fact, speaking of the rise of modern scholarship, you write, modern scholars inherited a moribund Bible, which after the Reformation had ceased to function as Catholic scripture in a divided Europe, in place of confessional modes of reading, which only seemed to perpetuate war, obscurantism, and senseless religious division, they created a new program for retaining the cultural authority of the Bible, and, uh, and yet, of course, as you say, it's no longer scripture. But you use another interesting linguistic turn that I think would, would surprise many modern people who think they are, uh, are cogitating in, a, in an informed way about the Scripture. And, and for instance, you refer to the fact that the Bible became a text, from Scripture to text. And, of course, it is a text. It, it always was a text. But in the sense you mean this, it became what we might call merely a text, a text in a, a very academic sense. That, that's right. I, I do mean that, that uh, term in a in a more narrow, or you might even say technical way, as you point out, the Bible right, had always uh, been a text, but it had always been a text um, in a kind of deeper, richer, and, and fuller ecclesial environment. It had been a text um, that functioned um, in the life of the Church. It had been a text that functioned liturgically. It had been a text that was understood um, in, in a much fuller context. And I think what you start to see after the Reformation is an interest really more in the objectivity of the Bible as a thing. Um, that is to say, you have a deep interest in its, um, in, the, in its physical properties, you have a deep interest in the, um, the state of the text as a, as, a, as a document. And so you have new strategies, basically, that develop in this period, growing out of the Renaissance humanist movement, which was itself concerned with text as well. Uh, but, but you have this applied to the Bible in a new way, so that the Bible becomes um, an object, and, and not only that, but a sort of textually disordered object that then has to be um, revitalized or repaired uh, through scholarship. And, and so I think um, once you've removed the Bible from its um, ecclesial context and from its sort of wider um, theological resonance, and, and you look at it kind of as, as a thing, as a disordered text, um, then scholarship becomes an operation by which that text is, um, is repaired and, and rendered um, 
fit for use. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm trying, I try to use the term text there to indicate that the Bible is a little, when it becomes a text, is a little bit like uh, a person who's um, sort of put onto the operating table. You know, that at that point, the person is inert and, and um, vulnerable to the procedures that the doctors want to perform on it. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that, uh, that's a very appropriate metaphor, and that's exactly what I think has taken place. And sometimes people who are engaging the same words on the same page are not engaging those words in the same mode, uh, in the same intellectual context. And uh, you talk about those two different rooms, one a room where Christians are gathered in worship and the other where scholars are gathered around an academic table. And the fact is they hold the same book, but it's not the same book And uh, in terms of, of, of how they approach that book. And I think, I think you have documented for us one of the key transitional moments and movements in which that particular shift took place. The shift of the Bible from Scripture to an academic text is no small thing. And the understanding of what took place in that shift is necessary in order for us to understand not only what's going on in terms of the modern research university and its intellectual projects, but also what's going on to many Christians look to the book that's in their hands and remain very unsure of exactly what this is, even as on the one hand they may refer to it as the inerrant and infallible inspired Word of God. On the other hand, they look at it as a text. But as C.S. Lewis once remarked, the one who tries to read the Bible merely as literature has never actually read the Bible. We certainly do not deny that the Bible is a text, but in the academic sense, it's certainly not merely a text. I'm talking to Professor Michael Legospi about his book, The Death of Scripture and the Rise of Biblical Studies, published by Oxford University Press in its series, Oxford Studies and Historical Theology. Professor Legaspi, we've been talking about two different ways of looking at the Bible. We've talked about the shift from Scripture to, uh, to an academic text, or, or what you call the academic Bible. But as much as we've documented some of the key intellectual concepts and the key shifts, I think what you also do very well in your book is to tell a story. History is best understood in terms of a narrative. So why don't you lay out for us the narrative of this development that you set out in your book? So I begin basically basically with a tragic um, division of the Christian Church in Europe during the time of the Reformation. And um, while I think many of the of the sort of theological arguments on both sides are certainly creditable, and, and a lot of the, the reformers um, are um, certainly involved in uh, important reform movements, and, and the Church is responding in, in appropriate ways as well. And I think there's a lot of good, uh, you know, a lot of things that we associate with Reformation that we regard now as um, as important. But, it, but I think overall, I, I guess I see the Reformation as, um, in one sense, tragic, in the sense that the Church uh, was fractured, its unity was fractured, and the Church itself was divided. And so this gives rise to um, a difficult period, I think, in the history of um, Western theology, in which um, the Bible becomes a contested thing um, among various groups, uh, Catholic, um, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, um, and Reformed, Anabaptist, and, and the whole variety of, of groups that develop in this time. And uh, unfortunately, I think um, this is not a positive development for the Bible, um, as the Bible comes to, to be a sort of contested thing, um, its authority in the wider culture, I think, starts to wane. And by the time you get to the Enlightenment, I think you, base, you have criticisms um, not only about the, uh, the credibility of the Church and its ability to function 
to continue to function uh, as a right as a source of unity in European culture, but you also have criticisms of the Bible as an old, um, irrational, and outdated thing. And so the story picks up then again in, in the context of the German Enlightenment when enterprising academics um, charged by German uh, governments with creating universities that will that will prepare um, citizens for leadership in in, in the new um, German modern nation state, uh, they turn to the Bible and they rehabilitate the Bible um, by making it a cultural Bible that allows them to place uh, the Bible at the center of new efforts to kind of transform uh, the older Christian religious inheritance uh, of the West and to make it something that works with a new form of life oriented toward, um, oriented toward the state, the modern liberal political order, and the prestige of science. And it's in that process that the Bible is appropriated um, by academics and becomes what I call the academic Bible. And I think that legacy is still with us in that our modern universities, colleges, and, and many of our seminaries are still engaged in teaching the Bible and talking about the Bible in the mode that was created um, in the time of the Enlightenment some 200 years ago. Uh, I'm sure you're right in terms of, of that latter part of your argument, in terms of of the result of these shifts. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to pushing the conversation a little bit in sure. terms of the earlier part of the narrative. But before we do that, I want to go back and ask you, you really focus not only upon the German university as a, as a new development and upon the larger German and European intellectual context here. You really focus on one academic and upon one university. And I, I think that's the way the story is best told, and you do it very well. You're really looking at one seminal figure in, uh, in becoming a catalyst. And indeed, you kind of argue the, the most important catalyst for this shift, and it took place at one university, which is also illustrative of the bigger picture. That's right. So um, the university that uh, is the University of Göttingen um, in the uh, territory of Hanover, which uh, was created um, in the 1730s at the initiative of um, King George II. And um, sort of what's going on in Germany at the time is that a lot of these, um, unlike, say, France and England, um, Germany is a kind of patchwork of territories, and very often these territorial rulers um, were creating universities to rival one another, to outstrip one another, and to compete with one another. And so it's a period of university reform and university founding in German history. And this particular university uh, was founded in the 1730s to become the kind of model modern university. And um, the the scholar with whom the book is concerned is um, is a man called Johann David Michaelis, who was a professor of Oriental languages at the university. And he was an enterprising uh, figure, and uh, he was someone who had himself trained uh, in biblical languages uh, at the University of Halle, which was a a pietist university. And um, Michaelis uh, was was someone who was concerned, basically, that the uh, about the future of of the study of the Bible. And I think what he did then was to sort of formalize a way of of studying the Bible that would allow it really to fit in with what was going on at these new universities. So he 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 took, for example, the study of Hebrew language. He made it more formal. He made it more scientific. And he sort of gave biblical studies uh, a scientific cast. Or he, in, 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 um, in talking about the Bible, uh, used a kind of historical criticism of the Bible's laws and legal materials to show that the Bible sort of fit in with classical history. Or he used uh, 
the, the work of some English scholars, for example, to show that um, the prophetic books in the Bible were best read uh, as poetry. So in this, he made the Bible the source of a kind of classic poetic literature. And so in these ways, he created ways of studying the Bible that allowed it to seem more like a classic cultural text uh, than uh, what we think of as the Bible, the possession of the Church. Um, and in formulating a method of study oriented toward the Bible in this way, he was able to convince the people at the university that the Bible had a future in the curriculum. The Bible had a future in modern Germany as a kind of indication of the great human past. And he was highly successful in this, and uh, he trained um, a number of important scholars in the German context, and this model was reproduced uh, at other places and became within the 19th century, which was the kind of golden era of the German uh, university with respect to biblical studies, um, this program uh, took off. So, um, yeah, There's always danger in, in, in uh, responding to something like that with the phrase, in other words, but I'm going to try it here. Let's just say, uh, in, in other okay. words, a German monarch reigning as a British king established a German university in order to establish an academic pattern of biblical studies that then influenced the English-speaking world as well. Nicely done. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think that's um, that's exactly what happened. Uh, it's w- we tend more to speak of of German influence upon everyone else, um, only because um, German scholarship in the 19th century was so important. Um, but in this case, it actually has a kind of we. It actually begins sort of on on, on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, Indeed, with an English uh, uh, monarch who uh, who's. Um, creating the university, which then has an effect not only on England, but uh, the rest of Europe as well. Yeah, especially since uh, what we're looking at here is Germany becoming the very center of this kind of, this particular trajectory of enlightenment thought. And uh, as you well know, uh, having done your doctoral work at Harvard University, even now the German methodology in terms of, of biblical scholarship, the German tradition of biblical criticism is still the dominant academic tradition. Uh, even right down to the German words that are integral to the discipline. So th- that that is a trajectory that's not just something in terms of the history of the 16th century and thereafter, but very much uh, a part of where we are today, which is where I want to, to, to push you just a little bit. You want to go back to the 16th sure. century in, in your book, yeah. and, and uh, you argue that this is basically the result of, of the, the schism in Christendom, the division that was the result of the Reformation. And by the way, I, have to, I would have to say as an evangelical, uh, and uh, a champion of Reformation theology that, that I think the Reformers would also have understood the Reformation to have been tragic. Okay. Uh, but they would have understood that tragedy in different terms. And uh, th- so they would have seen it as necessary, although necessarily tragic, you may say, in, in that. And, and I want to I push back just a little bit because it seems to me that just as it's not particularly uh, accurate to speak of the Reformation as something that just emerged in the 16th century, after all, there were intellectual developments, and uh, as Heiko Obermann uh, points out, there were forerunners to the Reformation. It, it appears to me that, in, that what we call Christendom was already beginning to be fractured before you had anything like the Magisterial Reformation. You already had within what was supposedly a unified Catholicism, the uh, the, the breakup of the intellectual culture, and of course— one of the things I think we have to acknowledge here, the political culture is very important as well because of the of the union of throne and altar. When you began to have the kinds of political shifts that took place in the early modern age, in one sense, I, I, I just want to press you a little bit to see, to go back to the 16th century. Was it really the Reformation that did this or, or was it the larger intellectual project of early modernity? Um, uh, 
that's a great question. And I guess I just have to start by acknowledging that there were um, indeed uh, forerunners to the Reformation uh, in which a lot of the same arguments, the same discussions um, about biblical interpretation were sort of previewed. Um, So historically, at one level, it's it's a mistake to say that this is all um, 16th century. As you point out, uh, there are important late medieval um, antecedents to the kind of reforms and discussions that, that really explode in the 16th century. So I guess I would say just at one level, basic historical level, the kind of shift that I'm talking about with respect to textualization, it, it takes off in the 16th century. So I guess what I mean by this are the um, works of scholarship devoted to the Bible mm-hmm. as text, the great polyglot Bible projects, which are wonderful examples of this new understanding of the Bible as text, and the development of these, of these tools to kind of deal with the Bible in a, in a contested environment all accelerate after the 16th century. So, I mean, just at a kind of basic empirical level, uh, I would say that the 16th century um, is important. Um, as to the point about the influence of, of early modern philosophy on, um, on on these developments. I mean, I mean, they clearly they're they're there to be acknowledged, and you know, one one need only think of people like um, Spinoza or or Hobbes um, to see just how people outside the church were um, were in their own ways encouraging these kinds of developments. Um, but I, I I do think that um, if I can put it this way, I think the ball was in the court of 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 the of the Christians, and and I think. I, I, I personally, I see the Reformation um, as a failure, uh, as a failure of, of truth at many levels, but also as a failure, uh, a failure of love as well. And I think mm-hmm. that the kind of early modern developments that, that we see coming along in such an important way in the 17th century, I think really are, I think the way is prepared for them by um, the failure Christians to sort of keep the thing together at the time of the Reformation. So in that sense, I, I mean, I wonder very much whether things would have happened the way they did if the separation in the 17th century hadn't been as dramatic and final as we know now it was. Well, and indeed, and uh, of course, you can also go from the 16th century to our current 21st century and, and recognize that uh, even as those divisions uh, are, are continuing and, and very real, at the same time, over against a larger secular project, uh, they have to be put into an entirely new context, which is exactly where I want to lead in terms of my questions. Because when I read your book, uh, quite frankly, uh, I, I was uh, I was stimulated to new ways of thinking about the Bible and this transition in the modern age in virtually every chapter. But but then I arrived at the end of the book and I wondered, I wonder what he would say about drawing a line from where your book ends to where your life is now situated. I mean, after all, you know the Scripture, the Bible, both as Scripture, as in a confessional sense, and uh, you did a Ph.D. in Old Testament literature at Harvard University, so you, you've been in both places. You know both worlds. H- how would you connect uh, Guttingen and, uh, and Michaelis and then to uh, your own experience? Um, well, that, that's... Um... That's a difficult question, and it's always hard to talk about um, about oneself. Um, so I, I guess I'll say that I, I went to Harvard ultimately because, um, as a Christian and as someone who came to biblical studies as a Christian, um, I always had the lingering question, 
within the, the academic, um, when, you know, when, when doing the academic study of the Bible, you know, what does this have to do with the Church? I mean, is, is anything we discover going to change our beliefs, say, in uh, the divinity of Christ or the doctrine of the Trinity? And uh, I mean, obviously, no. Uh, so I, I always wondered, you know, what am I doing here? Um, and, and I went to Harvard because I really thought that would be an ideal place um, to explore uh, explore this, and and I think what I saw at Harvard and what I've seen in, in my other sort of travels, if you will, is um, the way in which biblical scholarship um, functions socially, politically, um, and culturally. And, and I guess what I've gained in, in those contexts is, is is an understanding of that. Um, so what I have now, um, as someone who is a Christian, um, is a kind of is a sense um, now of of what it means for the Bible to function politically and, and culturally, uh, and also what it means to function um, religiously. But 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 then my own book has basically allowed me, I think it's freed me to think in new ways about how a social, cultural um, rationale for the study of the Bible at the university or in an academic context might be uh, reconceived. Um, so I, I am still a teacher, I am still involved in academics, and I do think there is a future for an academic study of the Bible. I don't think anything necessarily on the confessional side needs to, needs to depend on it the way a lot of um, scholars do. They insist that what scholars come up with in talking about the historical context of the Bible needs to shape and determine the theology of the Church. Um, I don't think that way, in contrast to um, well, lots of others in the sort of liberal Protestant and, and particularly liberal Catholic world. But Anyway, I don't think that what ha- what happens on the academic side needs to shape or determine necessarily what happens on the, on the churchly side. But I do think, just as Christians that are are engaged in the world and, li- and living in the world, that an academic study of the Bible um, can still be um, can serve an important role. I don't th- think it serves the old role, or I don't want it to serve the old role of um, insulating or domesticating the Bible the way that it did in the old Enlightenment order. <laughs> Or simply just sort of fertilizing um, a, a modern culture with with its own um, decomposed contents, the way I think it did. Um, but I'm I'm interested in thinking with other people about how a new academic study of the Bible might be conceived to fit the situation in which we find ourselves today. And that situation would have to include something that marks our intellectual context in dramatic contrast to that of the yes. period you covered in your book, and that is. Yes that the Scripture does not play the central part in our culture, and yep. certainly within academic life. Uh, you know, for, for instance, uh, most of the people at Harvard doing doctoral degrees would have very little knowledge, perhaps uh, perhaps less about what you were doing than almost any other discipline on that campus because of the displacement of Scripture in terms of modern academic life. I, I couldn't agree more that our context um, is completely different. And, um, yeah, so the, the cultural the cultural capital of the Bible is really can no longer be assumed. I mean, I think the worry back then was that uh, you would have, um, if you didn't have critical scholarship, you know, you would have um, you would have fundamentalism, you would have fanaticism, you would have sectarianism, uh, and so there was a kind of effort to sort of hold, to rein in uh, belief in the Bible. But um, I think in our own context, um, biblical literacy is is low. I don't think the Bible functions in the same way anymore. I, I was talking with a, a Catholic moral theologian who made a really nice analogy. Um, she said there used to be a time in Catholic moral theology when theologians um, cultivated a dissent from the Church, which was necessary to kind of help people think critically about their own moral lives. But she feels like the question now in Catholic moral theology 
for people is why belong to a tradition at all? And and I think the question analogously for that I would pose um, is you know why should we be involved with the Bible at all? And I think um, academics need to rethink that question. I have to ask you one last question, just uh, for my own interest. Uh, you teach at Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts. You teach uh, a rather select group of very intelligent teenagers. What do you say to them about the Bible? What, what, what do you teach in that context concerning the Scriptures? A long way from the University of Göttingen. Uh, but uh, to me, a, a question of real interest. What, what do you do there? Um, it's great. I, I, I have wonderful students. As you say, they're very bright. They're very motivated. Um, and and not, you know, a lot of them really don't know very much about the Bible. Um, so my task is basically to help them understand um, is to help them understand what has made the Bible such a kind of vital force in people's intellectual, moral, and spiritual lives. So rather than work on sort of contextualizing the Bible historically, I mean, to be honest, I do a little bit of that. Um, but my goal is, is for that. I want them to walk out of my classroom at the end of the term feeling like, I know why this has changed people's lives. I know why this has been regarded as a dangerous book. I know why it's remade whole cultures. Um, I mean, not, not that they know those questions fully, but I want them to have a sense that the, of the existential challenge uh, that the Bible um, plays. So I, I'm not trying to tone down the Bible, which is the kind of standard move in critical scholarship. I'm rather trying to tone up their sense of what's at stake in reading the Bible. And so I, um, I, we try to stay within the biblical narrative, and, and I, make it, um, I make it as dramatic as I can, and I make the existential challenge that the Bible presents to us as moral beings, as spiritual beings, as intellectual beings, um, also as, as dramatic as I can. I think that's really the the best thing I can do for them uh, in the limited time I have with them. Well, the very fact that you were able to say that in just that way tells me that your students are sitting in a very privileged context with you as teacher. Professor Michael Gaspi, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Thank you so much, Dr. Muller. It was a pleasure. It has been said that human beings are collectors of stories, and our lives make sense in terms of the accuracy and uh, the meaningfulness of the stories that we collect. One of the stories any Christian needs to have in his or her collection is the story of what happened to the Bible in the very era that Michael Legaspi has documented so well here. The narrative he's just told us is one that explains how you get from, well, the one picture he told to the next— from the Christians gathered in a room understanding the Bible as the Word of God in worship, and the scholars sitting around a table looking at the Bible as an academic text. Understanding that story is essential to understanding the great challenges of our own time. In the story that Michael Legaspi tells so well in his book, The Death of Scripture and the Rise of Biblical Studies, he makes clear that in the future that was envisioned by the German intellectuals that he covered, he says it is the academic Bible and not the scriptural one that shapes the culture. I think looking back now from the perspective of several centuries after the period covered in Legaspi's book, the reality is that the scripture really doesn't seem to have that much hold on our culture, not the same way that it certainly had a hold upon the culture of Germany and even of the German universities in the 16th century. We're looking at a very different intellectual culture, and yet the issues remain. What is this book? How do we think of it? That's where evangelical Christians reading a book like this need to come to a very clear understanding that there are limited alternatives in terms of our understanding of this book. And when we come down to it, we really are left with the fact that it either is the inspired Word of God, 
or it is something else. It's an artifact of ancient religious literature. Now, when you look at it that way, you understand there are different ways you can try to construe that choice. You, you, you can try to, to build moderating or mediating positions. You can try to argue for a continued authority of a text that is now robbed of its divine inspiration and thus its divine authority. But at the end of the day, what the culture does with the Bible is of interest to us. It's of crucial interest to us. But it's what the church does with the Bible that is most important. The Bible is indeed the church's book in the sense that we understand that it is God's Word. It's not just a record of God's Word. It doesn't merely contain God's Word. It is God's Word in written form. And by that very designation, it is Scripture, and it can never be less than Scripture. It can never be other than the Word of God in written form, which is indeed a text. It is words on paper. We understand that. It is literature. It follows literary conventions and is found in a literary mode, but it is not merely a text. It is not merely literature, and it is not merely a book. It is indeed the divine word. It is indeed the word of God. It is scripture, and that's one of the crucial insights you get from a book like this. How is it that you can look at one book? It's for sale in chain bookstores. It's found in the, in the drawers of hotel rooms. It's found just about everywhere you look in this culture, but for most people, it is not scripture. It might be a text. It might even be a book. It might be literature, but it is not Scripture. And thus, even though we use the word Scripture, sometimes in a more generalized sense, Legaspi's use of the word does remind us that when you look at this book, you're going to make a fundamental choice. What is this book? The changed intellectual climate between the period of time, especially in the 16th century and its aftermath that Professor Legaspi looks at, you, you begin to look at this and you step back and you say, we are in a period that is so remarkably different that the academics that are now shaping the university culture, by and large, feel no accountability to the very things that were the central project of people like Johann David Michaelis. This is a different world. We're living in a vastly secularized academic culture. And when you look at that, you recognize that our missiology has changed in terms of our challenge, our apologetic challenge has changed, and yet we are not in the best position to address those contemporary challenges if we do not know the story of how we have arrived at this point. And that's where a book like Professor Legaspi's book, The Death of Scripture and the Rise of Biblical Studies, is so very important. Evangelicals reading this book are likely to go back to the beginning of his account and press some questions there, as I did in conversation with him, about his reading of the Reformation and its aftermath. If you just read the book before listening to this conversation, you would think that Professor Legaspi just points back to the Reformation as the great tragic event that set the stage for the displacement of Scripture in the culture. And if you're looking at it in terms of the long span of Western civilization and Western culture, there is some sense to what he's meaning there, of course. You do understand that in the vast shifts that took place in the early modern age, at the beginning of it, you have the union of throne and altar, the union of, of, of Scripture and, and church and culture. And on the other side, you have a very different picture. And, of course, it's very different also in terms of being different in different places. It's very different in terms of the French Enlightenment than in the German Enlightenment. And then comparing that to the English-speaking Enlightenment— Distinctions even between the English Enlightenment and the Scottish Enlightenment, and differences that implied even different ways of understanding the book we know as the Holy Bible, as the Scripture. But what about the Reformation when he said it is a failure of truth and a failure of love? Here's something that evangelical Christians who prize the Reformation as such a necessary and providential corrective and recovery of the gospel need to keep in mind. It was a tragedy. It was tragic in breaking apart the church, in breaking apart unity, in dividing the church so that it had multiple voices, no longer speaking with a common voice, where the faith once for all delivered to the saints was claimed to be one thing here and another thing there. That is a tragedy. 
But as is so often the case in a fallen world, there are some tragedies that are tragic necessities. And as a confessional Protestant, I want to point back to the Reformation of the 16th century and say, it was a tragedy, but it was a necessary tragedy. It would have been more tragic had the gospel not been articulated and recovered, had it not been defended and proclaimed the way it was in the 16th century. But there is loss. Uh, There's the kind of loss that happens whenever a correction has to take place. It's the kind of loss that takes place even in the context of a necessary surgery to save a life, a massive surgery, that the kind of surgery that requires the breaking open of a body and requires a long period of healing on the other side. You understand that it is necessary, but no one would sign up for it voluntarily. The Reformers, we need to remind ourselves, did not at first seek to break from the church. They sought to reform the church. That's where the Reformation gains its name. And no one understood the tragedy of the failure of that Reformation better than the magisterial reformers, such as Martin Luther himself. And yet he was unapologetic, because the greater tragedy would have been had the Reformation never happened. As not only a confessing Protestant and as an evangelical, but as a Southern Baptist, having lived through what has been called the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention, I saw the very same thing, a necessary corrective an absolutely, unapologetically necessary correction, but one that also came with a tremendous cost, a cost of the rupture of relationships, a cost of the loss of unity of a people, and at the cost, at least in some sectors, of confusion over what it was all about. In other words, to use Professor Legaspi's words, a failure of truth and love. A necessary tragedy, but a tragedy nonetheless. On the other hand, like in the Reformation, a tragedy that gave birth to where we know our home and where we understand our responsibility to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And a tragedy that, as we are reminded by the entire story that Professor Legaspi has told us, that will only be rectified eschatologically. In other words, we understand the past in order not only to understand the present, but to understand our yearning for the future. Many thanks to my guest, Michael Legaspi, for joining with me today. Before signing off, I want to remind you about the first annual Expositor Summit, an important conference taking place on the campus of Southern Seminary next week. That is October 30th through 31st. The theme of this year's conference is Preaching in a Post-Everything World. Please join me along with John MacArthur and Alistair Begg and others for this conference on the campus of Southern Seminary. For more information, visit sbts.edu. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.